Hi, everyone. Welcome to Room Now Live's Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Uh, in this segment of Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we'll be featuring content from Room Now Live, hosted by myself and my co-host, Artie Cavanaugh. Hey, Artie. Hey, welcome to Tuesday. Tuesday night. So um, in this uh, edition of Tuesday Night Rheumatology, we're going to feature uh, three lectures on uh, rheumatoid arthritis this is our pod or session on rheumatoid arthritis. I, I think of this as a powerhouse session. Uh, I think what we're going to do is we're going to hear about roughly 15 minutes of each of these talks. Each of these were about 30 minutes talks. So you can go to either our YouTube channel or on Room Now. You'll be able to see the full talks where you can listen to all the details. But we're going to show you excerpts that we think can generate discussion and whatnot. If you have any questions, put them in the Q&A panel. Uh, as we finish each session, uh, each lecture, we're going to take maybe a few questions and then get into the next one so that we can end in roughly an hour or so. We'd like to begin with a poll, if you don't mind uh, doing a poll. Um, and here's your poll question. How did you hear about... Tuesday Night Rheumatology featuring Room Now Live. And the answers are there, Twitter, email, Room Now, something or other, the podcast, word of mouth, or other snail mail? What would other be? I don't know. It's kind of scary. One person answered other. We're going to have to hunt you down and find out what that's all about. All right. So we got time for maybe 10 more of you to answer. That would be helpful. And um, if not, we'll be getting on with our first speaker. Artie, you want to introduce Dr. Fleischman? Absolutely. So as Jack says, the topic is rheumatoid arthritis. And very pleased to have at Room Now Live, which was, uh, boy, it seems like a while ago. It was just pretty recent, though. And that's uh, Professor Roy Fleischman, Roy Fleischman, uh, who has really been one of the pillars of clinical research in rheumatology for, for a very long time and uh, still right in the thick of it in terms of the development of newer molecules and newer strategies for established molecules. And uh, uh, very pleased to have a real expert to uh, talk to us. So Roy is going to, we're, we're, we're cutting off the first 10 minutes of his talk where he talked about future therapies, really cool stuff, you know, nanobodies and things that might happen in the future. But we wanted to get into, you know, where he sees the current state of therapy. And he does a big detailed discussion about the Pfizer 1133 study, which is all about the safety of JAK inhibitors going forward. So let's hear from our friend, Dr. Fleischman. Roy, take it away. So let's talk about treatment considerations in 2021. So it's unlikely that a new mechanism of action will be available this year. Um, and uh, the ACR guideline ULR recommendations generally equate starting either a biologic or a target synthetic after methotrexate based on studies done prior to 2019 when these recommendations were actually written. But the most recent studies show that most patients will do better with a combination of methotrexate and biologic or target synthetic, not as monotherapy. Some patients do okay with monotherapy, but most combination. And if you have to use monotherapy, the best drugs are an IL-6 inhibitor or a JAK. Um, and 
uh, we've shown with uh, all four jackanums that are proved anywhere in the world uh, that a jackanum plus methotrexate is at least as effective as a TNF plus methotrexate. Upatacin, baricitinib, it was baricitinib of four milligrams, were superior. Tofacitinib was uh, uh, equivalent, uh, and fogotinib was uh, superior. So the question was, should we consider using a JAK prior to a TNF considering the benefit risk? Um, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Um, so I want to give you some background, and this is really important. So this is the benefit of JAKs is well-established versus biologic DMARDs, but what about the safety? So I'm going to talk about the results of the Pfizer 1133 study, which came out in the past couple of weeks. And all I have is top-line data, as you have, but there are things that we can see from that top-line data that we need to think about. The conclusion is not that JAKs are dangerous. Let me, let me just start that out. The conclusion is not that jacks are dangerous. We can't say that, and I'll show you why. So this is a malignancy, a systemic review of registries, and I want to point to the, to the red. Compared to conventional synthetics, mortality cardiovascular events was significantly decreased in patients treated with TNFs. So TNFs do decrease cardiovascular events and mortality. Uh, and anti-TNFs did not increase the risk of solid ma ma malignancy, either in patients with prior malignancies or not. Um, the one that was most seen was lymphoma uh, and lung cancer. That, that's what we see in patients with RA. So the conclusion was by reducing dramatically chronic inflammation in RA, which is what the TNF inhibitors do, anti-TNFs decrease mortality, uh, MACE or cardiovascular events, without significant increase in the risk of cancer compared to conventional synthetics. So this is comparison to conventional synthetics. Now, what's the correlation of RA itself and traditional risk factors and disease activity in the treatment of, with cardiovascular disease in RA patients? So rheumatoid arthritis, as we know for years, uh, patients have an increased risk of cardiovascular events. And the risk correlates both with uh, traditional risk factors but also with markers of inflammation. An epidemiologic study suggests that several disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug treatments for RA associated with, with reduced risk of cardiovascular events, um, including methotrexate and tumor necrosis factor. So the epidemiologic sh studies show that cardiovascular events are reduced with methotrexate and with TNFs compared to a patient who's untreated. Um, and it's been demonstrated that reduction in disease activity over time in RA is associated with fewer cardiovascular events. And there have been many studies that I've seen over the past 20 years who have shown that. We can reduce cardiovascular events by treating rheumatoid arthritis appropriately. Um, now, we, we know for the past year, for sure, uh, since the first part of the 1133 uh, study came out about PE and VTE, but I want to bring you up to date here. So now, if you take a look at the graph on the right, Patients with RA, compared to patients who don't have RA, even if they're treated, and these are with conventional synthetics, even if uh, they're treated, have twice the risk of developing a pulmonary embolus or DVT, a PE or a DVT. So the risk of a VTE is higher in patients with RA, even if they're treated with conventional synthetics compared to the normal population. 
And this is an article which just appeared, actually. Uh, it was an abstract at ULR, but it was just published, I think, in ARD. It's from Olander in Sweden, where they showed that the risk of ET is actually related to disease activity. So patients in remission didn't have an increased risk. But patients had high disease activity, and they used the DOS-28, um, I think it was the CRP, uh, had twice the risk of a patient who's in remission. And if they had moderate disease activity, the risk was diminished somewhat. Uh, if they were in low disease activity, a little bit better, remission was actually quite good. So now, this is all set up for tofacinib in the clinical development program. What did we know about tofacinib before we saw the 1133? So this is from Stan Cohn's publication on the entire program of tofacinib. And this is malignancies in MACE. And you can see that malignancies in MACE have been described in the program. They have a very low, a relatively low incident rate, and they're persistent over time, consistent over time. They don't increase over time. As you take tofacinib, you don't have an increased risk, according to this data, for both malignancies in MACE. And if you take a look at VTE and PE, it's the same. The VTE here is actually DVT uh, and PE. Very low risk, but it's there, and it doesn't increase over time. There's not an increasing risk of cardiovascular events or PE or um, even cancer over time. And this is the uh, corona registry. Um, and so this is interesting because now uh, they're taking a look at tofacitinib, which is the dark dot, versus biologic DMARDs in the colonal uh, registry, and they're looking at MACE, malignancies, and death. And you can see in the first column, which is MACE, that the, there is numerically less um, MACE in the TOFA compared to the biologics in the registry, but the confidence intervals overlap. SIEs, a little bit more with TOFA, but the confidence intervals overlap. Herpes zoster, as we know, is higher with TOFA. Malignancies are the same, non-melanoma skin cancers are the same, and death is the same. And on the right, I show you the finger plot with the, with the um, confidence intervals. And in, according to this, the, um, uh, the risk for MACE is lower with TOFA than with biologics. Uh, herpes zoster is higher. Everything else is the same. So this is a registry of regular RA patients in practice. Um, this was what they saw for VTE, DVT, and PE, tofacitinib versus biologics, no difference. VTEs, DVTs, PEs occurred in both groups, and there was no difference. So that's what the Corona Registry showed. That's what the clinical trials showed. And here's the Pfizer 1133 study. So this is what we all saw, or we should have seen, uh, last month or the end of January. Um, so um, Pfizer announced the uh, co-primary endpoint result from the 1133 study. Now, you have to understand the study. The primary objective of the study was to evaluate the safety of tofacitinib, both 5 and 10 milligrams, versus the TNF inhibitor. The TNF in the United States, uh, in, in the United States and Canada, was adalimumab and the rest of the world was in Tenercept. So they had two different anti-TNFs. Um, and the patients had to have RA, and they had to have greater risk. So they had to be over the age of 50, and they had to have at least one additional cardiovascular risk factors. 
um, because the co-primary uh, uh, points were, uh, was mace and malignancy. And uh, what they stated was the result shows that these co-primary endpoints, the pre-specified non-inferiority criteria were not met for the primary comparison for the combined doses to a TNF. They didn't separate the TNF. And based upon the pre-specified secondary comparisons, there was no evidence of a difference uh, between the two tofacitinib treatment groups. So if you just read this and you, and, and you take a look at it and you read the top-line data, you don't think much about it, you say, oh, TOFA is more dangerous than a TNF. TOFA is more dangerous than a TNF. But you need more information. So oral surveillance, or 1133, was specifically designed to assess the cardiovascular events and malignancies. And therefore, subjects required to be at least 50 years of age and have at least one cardiovascular risk factor. And they had to be on background medication. Um, there were uh, over 4,000 subjects who received the study treatment. And in the analysis of these 4,400 uh, 4, uh, 4, patients, 135 had MACE, 164 had malignancies. Fetofacitinib, the most re uh, frequently reported MACE was myocardial infarction. We expect that. that. That would be the MACE event that you would see in patients with RA. And the most frequently reported malignancy was lung cancer, and we expect that as well. So if you go back into literature and you look at the standardized incidence ratio of malignancy in patients treated with JAX, any of the JAX, it's one. And the reason why it's one is, is because it's reduced for cancers like colon cancer um, uh, 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 and breast cancer but it is increased for lymphoma and lung cancer. Those are the two cancers that still occur in patients with rheumatoid arthritis treated with any of our biologics. So the lung cancer was not, was not surprising to me. And this is very important because this is what I'm focusing on. In those subjects with a higher prevalence of known risk factors for MACE and malignancy, that means the patients who are older so it may not be a patient's 50 or 55 or 60. It may be 65 or 70 or 75. It may be that there's a subgroup of patients who are older who are at greater risk and smoke, right, particularly when you talk about lung cancer and heart disease. So the risk may be in a subpopulation of this very specific population in 1133. Um, and it was seen across all treatment groups. So that's something to think about when you see this fully presented. None of us have seen it fully presented yet. So uh, I put this slide together this week, actually. So, uh, no, I'm sorry, this is MACE. Um, and this, uh, 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 this is giving you the, the results. And I want you to take a look at the third column. Um, and the third column is this one, the incident rate. The incident rate is low. For MACE, for TOFA, especially the five, um, and for the TNF. Actually, for the TNF, it's lower than in the ATTRACT trial, which also looked at TNF. But numerically, it is higher with TOFA. But they're low. When you do the hazard ratio, you do that 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 that, that division. So you take uh, 0.91 and you divide it by 0.73, you get 0.124. 
So the hazard ratio is higher, but the, rate, but the incident rate is still low. And I should have said that uh, in the beginning. So the way that this analysis was done was was a non-inferiority, but they did not measure the uh, lower bound of the confidence interval. All the FDA was interested in was whether the upper bound of the confidence interval would be greater than 1.8. And as you can see in the, uh, where I have the hazard ratio uh, down here, the upper bound for the 5 is 1.91. It failed because it was higher than 1.8. I'm not talking about the 10 milligram because there is more risk with the 10 milligram. So I'm really just focusing on the 5 milligram. And then, um, if you take a look at malignancies, you see the same thing. Uh, the incident rate is 1.13 versus 0 0.7, both low, numerically higher with TOFA than with uh, uh, the TNF, and the hazard ratio is 2.18, um, uh, the upper bound, uh, but the hazard ratio is 1.47. So that's why they come up with the top line result. But you have to look at this in terms of low incidence of these rates anyway. So the, we calculate the number needed to harm. And you have to treat something like four or 500 patients to get one patient harmed. And then when you look at the number needed to treat to get an effect, it's something like six. So it's the risk benefit. And again, it's the upper bound. And this is the EMA assessment report of um, uh, PE and VTE. Um, and I actually wanted to highlight the incident rates of the, the ones that are in the white. So in the top column, the incident rate for the TOFA 5 is 0 0.27. The TNF is 0 0.09. That's the lowest that has ever been shown in any, any analysis of the 0 0.09. The 0 0.27 is what you expect to see. That was not statistically, uh, I'm sorry, for, for pulmonary embolism, that was statistically significant. Um, if you take a look at DVT, which is the, the next group, it was 0.3 versus 0.18. That was not statistically significant. Arterial thromboembolism was 0 0.63 versus 0 0.61. That was not statistically significant. Uh, deaths of 0 0.57 um, versus 0 0.27 uh, was also not statistically significant for the 5 milligram, but the PE was. But the rates are again low. So here are the current box warnings. So because of this, what the FDA did um, about a year ago was to add what's in red, all-cause metallium thrombosis with Zelgens, 10 milligrams. It should have been five. Uh, should have been 10 milligrams once. Uh, 10 milligrams should have been five milligrams uh, twice daily. It isn't twice daily. Uh, yeah, no, Zelgens 10 twice daily versus five with TNF. So what the FDA said was the 10 milligrams is not good. The five they're not worried about. Um, and lymphomas and other malignancies have been observed in patients treated with Zelgen. So we knew that before. Now, they did have a safety communication. Uh, and they've added increased risk of serious heart-related problems and cancer with arthritis and ulcerative colitis. And they are evaluating these results. They haven't changed the label yet. I'm sure they will, but they haven't. And then Pfizer communicated this to the community. So uh, this is, uh, I'm going to use this as my last slide because I think that this is important. Um, so the meta-analysis registered clinical trial programs didn't reveal the signal for MACE, solid malignancy, PTE, PE, or death. None of those did. 
the head-to-head -head trial did. But now there are questions. So are these increased risks just in patients with RA? In patients in PSA as well, colitis? Are these risks lower with tofacitinib than an untreated uh, uh, patient? So now tofacitinib conceivably reduces the risk versus an untreated patient, just not as much as a TNF. Are these risks lower than a patient treated with conventional synthetics? They didn't check it just against methotrexate. So is Topher better than a conventional synthetic? Are these risks also elevated compared to other biologics? They didn't take a look at IL-6 inhibitors or B-cell inhibitors. Are these risks versus uh, TNF solely seen with tofacitinib, or is it a class effect? And we don't know the answer to that. And resuming the results of 1133 are accurate and class-specific, does the small increase in risk, although statistically significant, change your risk-benefit assessment of Jackins versus TNF and other biologics? So another polling uh, question, and it really was, well, I still prescribe tofacitinib, as I did. Uh, Okay, um, Artie, um, we're going to do a, uh, a poll uh, of everyone. We're going to ask them Roy's question. So here's the poll that, uh, that Roy put up for the group. Let me just pull this up. Here we go. Relaunch polling. Okay, so this is a new poll. Has the 1133 study changed your use of JAK inhibitors? No, I still use. I'm concerned, but may use less. I'll use other JAKs, but less TOFA. I've stopped using JAKs. So let's get your opinion about this particular issue. Okay. We need about 20 more people answering. That would be good. All right, five more seconds. We're gonna close the polling. All right, so most people, uh, let me see if I can share the results here. Um, most people are saying, no, I still use JAK inhibitors or some 43% again are somewhat concerned, may use less. Um, and uh, again, only 13% are saying I'll use other jacks, but maybe less uh, of TOFA. So, Artie, those results surprised you at all? Yeah, I, I would have thought a couple of people would have said I've stopped using jack and nibs until they see all the data. Uh, it's interesting that's more than I would have thought for I'll use other jack and nibs because uh, we've not really seen data that I would say uh, satisfactorily suggest that they're any different one from the other. I mean, this study has a little more of this, that the other study has a little more of that, but they seem more similar and different. And certainly that's the way the FDA is considering them. So did, do you think Roy's point was that in trying to explain the results, he set it up by saying TNF inhibitors are good at lowering, you know, MACE and good at lowering infections and maybe even lowering cancer. And maybe the data isn't so much that JAKs cause cancer and cause heart events, it just, it doesn't lower it as much as a TNF inhibitor. You think that was his point? Yeah, I think so. I, and I, I try to use that uh, 
most days I say, I'm not getting heavier. The rest of the world is getting thinner. Uh, and that's the problem. It's not, I'm not getting heavier. Yeah, it's like trying to talk yourself out of a speeding ticket. I was only doing 80. Did you see that guy? Yeah, it's, uh, we're not sure how this is going to play with the FDA. Audience, you can ask your questions now or, um, uh, and, and people are asking me about a black box or whatever. I'm trying to control what you see from my, um, my desktop. So I'll try not to make any, any marks, but please ask your questions as we go along. We're going to get into our second speaker. This is Dr. Maya Butch, who's from um, uh, uh, Manchester. And you know, Maya was, uh, got famous at Leeds with Paul Emery, but now she's professor of rheumatology and director of experimental medicine at the University of Manchester. We've given her the really difficult task of defining and explaining difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis. So let's bring Maya on screen and, and hear what she has to say. Hold on a second. Here we go. All right, Dr. Maya Butch. The concept of refractory disease in itself is not new. Uh, and certainly in rheumatoid arthritis has been uh, talked about since probably the, the, the start of this century. And I've highlighted an article here approximately 16 uh, years ago that detailed refractory rheumatoid disease that had been unresponsive to conventional therapies. And certainly it's now emerged also, and hence the focus of the talk today, in the era of advanced therapies. Conceptually, refractory disease refers to the resistance of multiple drugs uh, that have different structures and mechanisms of action. And so if we focus on this area, you'll note that the title of the talk was also difficult to treat. And certainly these two terms have been used synonymously. The purpose of this slide is perhaps to illustrate that difficult to treat encompasses a broad umbrella, as it were. And I've included here various factors that influence our decision-making every day, irrespective of the number of drugs that a patient, individual patient may have tried. So we're all aware of patients that may have particularly poor prognostic factors that might uh, encourage us to be more responsive and aggressive with our treatment approach. We see patients that also have toxicity to drugs or where there may be a suggestion of immunogenicity to monoclonal antibodies. With an aging demographic and co and multimorbidity, certainly treatment options may be limited due to concerns about specific drug toxicity risk. And certainly lifestyle factors like smoking and exercise can be factors as well when we're met with our individual patient. What's become more apparent maybe over the last five or so years, reflecting a more refined approach to our practice and understanding our patient is the concept of adherence. And we, more, and we increasingly recognize how poor adherence may certainly be contributing uh, to poor outcomes. But I suppose refractory RA is a component of this wider difficult to treat RA. And by this, like I said in the previous, uh, pre previous uh, slide, indicates uh, a patient that is ne had needed a trial of multiple uh, therapies, DMARD therapies, and that has failed to show um, efficacy to this. So if we focus on this uh, definition, I suppose, I'd like to pose another question to you. In this context, what do you understand by refractory RA now? And I've listed here six options, and as you can see, they progress from conventional synthetic DMARD to the various classes of um, biologic and targeted synthetic therapies. So I'll give you a moment to these being the first biologics to have been introduced. And, and this slide is essentially to illustrate what we've come to 
realize that as our patients progress across the treatment pathway from an early RA stage and methotrexate naive to then being methotrexate experienced, in the TNF inhibitor category, we see then lower levels of response. And certainly we've recognized patients that are TNF refractory pretty soon after these drugs were into, in, introduced. So these weren't universally effective. But if we extend this concept, uh, this next slide really is to illustrate how the emergence of new biologic and now targeted synthetic therapies means that the kind of patient we meet that's refractory continues to evolve as treatment options have become available. And so on certainly a pragmatic level, we understand refractory disease perhaps to be persistent, continued disease activity with limited remaining treatment options. And so we are certainly aware that some patients progress across these different treatments. So how much of a burden is refractory disease? Well, um, the caveat is that the definitions are quite varied and I'll come on to that later, but certainly from observational and registry data, we have some uh, insight into this. This first uh, set of data is from Vienna, a single center cohort that aimed to look at its uh, database from four, over 400 patients. It identified patients that it termed treatment amenable rheumatoids. So these were stable, responsive patients that were in, were in sustained low disease activity or remission states. And then the refractory cohort, and here they define this as patients in moderate or high disease activity, um, again, in a sustained state of this, with insufficient response to at least three DMARDs, including one biologic DMARD. So not necessarily multiple uh, biologic failure, but at least one biologic. And we can see the proportion here, just under 20% fulfilling this category. This study looked at predictors of this refractory RA cohort, and there's and there are factors, maybe generic factors that we've become uh, conversant with. So delay to initial treatment, which we know is important for longer term outcomes. Also female gender and higher disease activity. But interestingly, they found no significant difference in these factors, perhaps more uh, objective factors we associate with disease between these two different treatment groups. There's similarly been another study by the British Registry uh, of Biologic Registry in Rheumatoid Arthritis, um, in, in the, so in the UK, and in this study looked at patients who'd started TNF inhibitors, and one in 20 patients were cycling through at least two biologic DMARDs within 10 years of treatment. The definition they employed here for refractory RA was exposure, not necessarily failure, exposure to at least three different classes of biologic DMARDs. And we can see here the reasons for failure were multiple. Um, most of the patients had a mixture of reasons, intolerance, inefficacy, but with a sizable proportion um, in whom repeated inefficacy was observed up to 40%. And so 6% of adults with RA fulfilled this definition, suggesting it's a modest group, but certainly we know refractory disease imposes a significant burden uh, on the individual patient and of course on the healthcare systems. So these different definitions and increasing uh, debate and awareness of refractory disease led the uh, ULAS, the European League Against Rheumatism Organization, uh, to convene a task force to define difficult to treat rheumatoids. And again, this speaks to the interchangeability, I suppose, of difficult to treat and refractory rheumatoid disease. And in the task force, we agreed treatment failure to be defined as at least 
failure to, to at least two biologic or targeted synthetic uh, DMARDs with a different mechanism of action. So not, for example, successive TNF inhibitor failure with signs of active and or progressive disease. And you've got a list of what these are that we recognize in our clinical practice. What I put in italics here um, actually identifies an additional dimension of difficult to treat and speaks to uh, maybe patients in whom obvious active disease isn't observed. So this is where there is well-controlled disease, but ongoing reduction in quality of life and where the symptoms are perceived as challenging by the rheumatologist and or patient. And I'll come on to this a bit later and what perhaps this implies for how we define patients with refractory disease and stratify these patients. So I'm going to move on to a case study. This is patient A who was double antibody positive, erosive, and had failed initial conventional synthetic DMARD, both methotrexate in combination with hydroxychloroquine. This patient initially had toxicity to a TNF inhibitor and was therefore given a trial of a second TNF inhibitor to which they initially demonstrated a good response, but nine to 12 months into that, uh, lost this response, what we call a secondary or acquired non-response. They then went on to rituximab, which is often the sequence of treatment employed in the UK, um, but failed to derive a sufficiently effective response. This patient remained in moderate disease activity, and you can see the components here. So I'd like to go back to yourselves, the audience, and ask what would be your next choice? And I've put a few options here. T of sericumab, an IL-6 monoclonal antibody, specifically in patients uh, with active disease, but refractory to anti-TNF therapy. And we've certainly seen an emergence over the last decade of studies now evaluating patients in this more resistant group. As you can see on the left here, these patients, um, large proportion, um, all patients had to have had previous anti-TNF, but the majority had failed anti-TNF due to inefficacy um, with only a small proportion due to intolerance. Um, a sizable proportion, almost 40%, had received at least two anti-TNF drugs. But as we can see, almost 40% had also received another non-TNF biologic demand. So these are quite a refractory proportion. And as you can see on the right, this, this is the ACR response outcomes. The primary outcome was ACR20, but also 1570 response included here compared to placebo with background conventional synthetic DMARD uh, continued. And we can see that the primary endpoint was met with also significantly greater proportions achieving these high hurdle endpoints. So in a refractory cohort um, of TNF plus or minus other biologic DMARDs, we're seeing a benefit of this IL-6 targeted therapy. But a question that often is raised, and I, I alluded to when I spoke about the ULAR task forces, what do we actually mean by refractory RA from the physician's perspective and the patient's perspective? Certainly from the clinician's perspective, we assume this means ongoing active inflammation, as I said at the very beginning, persistent pathology that's resistant to multiple drugs. And by persistent pathology, we mean uh, whether it's synovial disease, this being the primary manifestation of RA disease, but also not to forget RA is a systemic pathology, and so where there may be evidence of continued systemic inflammation. We use a composite index like DAS28 or equivalent to um, act as a surrogate for this inflammatory state, but we recognize this is imperfect. And so what we may be treating may not necessarily all be reversible. Certainly if there is a development of damage that's uh, driving components of the composite index, for example, a tender joint count, 
and the visual analog score, and also therefore may not be fixable where chronic pain and central sensitization may have set in. From the patient's perspective, arguably refractory disease is more simplistically the persistence of symptoms and a poor quality of life, whatever the underlying etiology. And so this may not necessarily correlate with inflammation that we assign uh, that we uh, assign with being associated with poor outcomes, um, be it function, comorbidity or mortality. And so one important aspect that I think we increasingly recognize that's not just limited to refractory RA are factors that drive our disease activity assessment, and therefore we need to take account into our decision making. So this study is again by the Vienna Group that sought to look at um, patients who didn't achieve Boolean remission. So Boolean remission, as you know, is the most stringent way of assessing uh, remission. And there are, out of the four criteria of swollen and tender joint counts, CRP and patient global, they looked at patients who achieved three of the four and identified that two thirds of those patients were failing to achieve Boolean because of not achieving the criteria in patient global. And when looking at what was the most significant predictor of patient global, it was pain. So often patients are failing to achieve controlled disease, in this case, remission, due to pain driving patient global. And this becomes important because when we assess our patients with, with ongoing disease activity, and particularly in the difficult to treat and refractory group who've had disease for a, a period of time, it remains really important to comprehensively assess our patients. So we use blood tests like CRP, x-rays, uh, joint assessment, patient reported outcomes, but also ultrasound has become a valuable tool to be able to identify active inflammation where this may not be so apparent from our usual clinical assessment. So if we go back to one of my earlier slides of difficult to treat RA, including these whole host of components that can make treatment, uh, disease assessment and treatment decision-making challenging, I would now perhaps divide refractory RA in terms of patients who've had multiple trials of therapy into those that have persistent inflammation and those that don't. And again, we talk when we talk about true refractory disease, we're really speaking to those with persistent inflammation. And where I used to work in Leeds, we looked at this in our historical cohorts and found a sizable proportion had gone across that treatment pathway I showed you at the very beginning of failing almost all the classes of biologics and even JAK inhibitor. And when we used ultrasound in a prospective cohort to identify proportions of patients in whom there may not be inflammation, there was a reasonable proportion that was satisfying this group. So it's important that we use all our tools available uh, to really be able to stratify patients that have refractory disease. But why may it be that patients have persistent pathology in the face of such effective targeted therapies. And this is clearly not been elucidated. And what's also not clear is whether sequence of therapies is relevant. I'm not going to focus on that, but it is a, a research question maybe. What we understand about rheumatoid is that it's highly heterogeneous, that patients span across the innate and adaptive pathways. And so there may be either targets that are relevant in subgroups that clinical trials haven't identified, and confirmed or, in, or indeed some unidentified targets of disease. So moving on to a next case study, this is a 48-year-old lady um, who has antibody negative disease, non-erosive at the time of diagnosis, but had an incidental MPO Pianco with no associated clinical phenotype. 
had again failed conventional synthetic, a persistently high disease activity. And you can see the biologic DMARDs this patient had gone through, Atanacept and then Rituximab and, and, and Sorisertilizumab, to which anaphylaxis had been, um, ha had been shown. This patient then went on to cerilimab, similar to the study I showed about the benefit of IL-6-targeted therapy and showed an initial response, but then developed an acquired non-response and had active disease and interestingly, more swollen joints compared to tender joints with evidence of low complements and lymphopenia. So a bit of a mixed phenotype, uh, speaking to the heterogeneity of disease. So this is your next question. What would be your next choice? And I've put these options here and I'll give you a moment to complete this. Okay, so Maya's got a question for us. We're going to um, we're going to go to the poll and see um, how you would answer that particular case. Um, so we're going to stop sharing these results. We're going to relaunch the polling. Um, oh, not wrong, wrong one. Let's do this one. Here we go. This is Maya's case, case two, an RA patient who's failed methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, sulfazalazine, etanercept, rituximab, sertilizumab, and ceruliumab. What's your next choice? And she notes that, you know, you can cycle to another TNF. You can cycle to another IL-6. You can just play with DMARDs. Um, or you can flip to other MOAs. These are all important issues uh, that are going to be discussed in our next by our next speaker, Dr. Alan Matsumoto, who's going to give us what the ULAR and ACR guidelines say about managing cases like this. All right, so thus far, with about two-thirds, of, three-quarters of you voting, we'll look at the results here. And you can see very few people want to cycle to another IL-6. And the audience is split between choosing abatacept next or a JAK inhibitor next. Interesting. So, um, Artie, do you have another idea about what you might do in that case? Or is that those re are those reasonable? No, I think those are the reasonable. I, I think an interesting thing that she didn't really get into is that, well, she kind of mentioned that in the UK, it had been standard to get a TNF. And then you get uh, the rituximab was the second. So that was the reason for that particular algorithm. But I think uh, what we've heard from our colleagues over there, it's different region to region, but with the introduction of the biosimilars, uh, it's caused more cycling that you, you know, she, this person had been on three TNF inhibitors and it would seem silly to go to, you know, why would you do that? Well, if the cost was, uh, if the acquisition cost was so much more favorable, that's why we do that. And also because I, I think as rheumatologists, we're lacking the ability to push back. We can't say, no, I demand the jack inib in this patient because we don't know what's going to work. That's the big failure of, of us not having better personalized medicine. Uh, so Perry Rush uh, from Canada says, you know, case like that, you fail everything. You should probably rethink the diagnosis and you know, she's a, is a seronegative patient. Would you really rethink the diagnosis? I think those are all on the table. I mean, the numbers on difficult RA, refractory RA, I like the way she defines it, is about 10%. And, you know, she showed us 6% and 
But it's maddening that we get around to the case like this where you failed six things and your next choice is a roll of the dice. And, you know, there's got to be a better way. And um, do you think that there will ever be a better way other than, or is this what drug companies are hoping for, that you'll eventually get around to using their next drug that they're trying to get approved? I think that we'll see. There, surely there'll be something to say, we, we should try this medicine for this patient based on some characteristics. I don't know if it'll be absolute as it is in oncology, where if you have this mutation in this gene, then this particular kindness inhibitor is going to be 95% effective. And if you don't have the mutation, it's going to be 0% effective. I don't think we're there because that's that these are not monogenic conditions, but I think we will have something better, but the, the cost issue is still going to be out there. Yeah. All right, let's go on to our final speaker, Dr. Alan Matsumoto. Alan's a rheumatologist uh, who's in practice with um, arthritis and rheumatism associates in Wheaton, Maryland. Uh, we gave him the difficult chat task of discussing how the paradigm is going to change with the introduction of the ULR 2019 and the ACR 2020 guidelines for the treatment of RA. So let's see um, what uh, Alan's got to say. I'm gonna pull him up over here and now we're gonna share his screen. So just some general uh, overview of the ACR uh, uh, recommendations. They were last updated in 2015, so a fair amount of time uh, ago. Uh, the project plan was published in 2018 and it's available on the ACR website and I put that into the pre-read materials. Um, the draft guidelines, as you know, were presented uh, at the last ACR uh, virtual meeting, uh, which many of us attended, um, and the publication is due very shortly, and I was told by Roy this morning that they were uh, officially approved uh, in this past uh, week. Uh, their mission was to develop recommendations for the use of DMARDs uh, and glucocorticoids, uh, but specifically they were asked to look at specific patient populations, so DMARD naive versus uh, DMARD uh, prior usage patients, low versus high disease activity, and specific populations and comorbidities and recommendations on tapering. And I'll address all of these uh, in the subsequent slides. They came up with 44 recommendations, only seven strong and 37 conditional. So I think it's also useful to look at how they use these uh, recommendations and what their criteria were for the recommendations. Strong recommendations were recommendations in which they thought that there was confidence that the benefits of intervention far outweighed uh, harms for most patients. And they also assumed that for most patients, there would be little variability uh, in uh, choice, that most patients would choose the course of action that was recommended. Conditional recommendations were recommendations in which there was uncertainty over the balance of risk and benefits, mostly because of the uncertainty due to low or sometimes very low quality of evidence. Uh, and they also assumed that patients might have uh, differences in preference, that many patients would choose alternative therapy based on either patient preference, concerns about safety, uh, or cost issues. The ULAR recommendations that I'm going to refer to were published uh, in 2020. Uh, it was a 2019 update. Um, it was last updated in 2016, so they uh, update more frequently. Uh, they used a, a task force of 47 individuals, which also included patients. Uh, and they approved five overarching principles, 12 recommendations, and only nine of, the 12 rec nine of the 12 recommendations were unchanged since 2016. So obviously not a lot of changes for a fair amount of work. 
uh, and they graded recommendations on level of ed evidence, level of agreement, and strength of recommendations. So again, I'm going to be using the audience uh, um, response system um, to present some cases, and they're going to be four cases, uh, which hopefully will highlight uh, some of the uh, more controversial aspects of the uh, ACR and ULAR guidelines. I want to stress that there is no right answer to this question, so I want you to all answer uh, with uh, uh, truthfully about how you would uh, uh, manage these patients in, in, in your own practice. Uh, and this way, you'll get a chance to look at what you do, and hopefully you'll get a chance to look at what other, other uh, in the audience do, uh, and also compare them to uh, the ACR guidelines. So this is a very typical case of a 45-year-old woman uh, with a six-month history of uh, new onset pain and swelling at the wrists, MCP, and PIP joints, one hour of morning stiffness, difficulty with uh, dressing, so difficulty with ADLs. She denies any other medical problems. She has tender synovitis uh, at the wrists, MCP, and PIP joints. Sed rate was elevated. CRP and rheumatoid factor are positive. Uh, routine blood studies are normal. So after discussion, you would elect to start the following regimen. Methotrexate monotherapy, Methotrexate plus responding, uh, people responding, 50% um, say D, methotrexate and taper prednisone. 42% uh, say A, methotrexate monotherapy, and the rest is a smattering with only 4% choosing methotrexate and TNF inhibitors. Okay, so the key here is, remember, half, half of the group said not only methotrexate monotherapy, but methotrexate plus a prednisone taper. So, what does the ACR say? So this is the group that they uh, 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 assessed as DMARD naive with moderate to high disease activity. Under the strong recommendations group, methotrexate monotherapy was preferred over uh, other conventional synthetic DMARDs, uh, biologic mono uh, and it was preferred over biologic monotherapy or targeted synthetic uh, monotherapy, uh, and it was also strongly recommended monotherapy over methotrexate plus a non-TNF or methotrexate plus a targeted synthetic uh, DMARD. Conditional recommendations uh, were methotrexate monotherapy uh, over uh, methotrexate plus another uh, uh, conventional synthetic DMARD or uh, triple therapy, uh, and conditionally recommended over methotrexate plus TNF uh, or uh, leflutamide. And just to round out their recommendations, if the patient had low disease activity, uh, hydroxychloroquine was uh, preferred over other conventional synthetic uh, DMARDs. So the controversial aspect of this is glucocorticoids. So their strong recommendation, which is not surprising, is to avoid long-term uh, glucocorticoid use. But what was interesting was, under the conditional recommendations, uh, they recommended not to use short-term uh, glucocorticoids. And this apparently was driven by uh, patient concerns that it was very difficult to wean off of a low-dose uh, corticosteroids, uh, and also some of the recent evidence that suggests that short-term glucocorticoids, uh, even at low doses early on in the course of disease, affects outcome uh, and comorbidities uh, uh, later on in the course of the disease. So somewhat of a departure, and as uh, uh, shown by your audience response, a significant departure from which many of, what many of us do. So they went on to uh, talk about methotrexate. None of these are surprising. These are all conditional recommendations, oral over sub-Q, if intolerant to methotrexate, splitting the dose, adding folic acid or increasing folic acid, switching to sub-Q, and if not on target on oral methotrexate, switching to sub-Q methotrexate. So 
things that we uh, frequently do uh, in our practices, so not very controversial at all. So the key here is, is that this is very different than the ULAR recommendations for the management of rheumatoid arthritis in which they clearly favor short-term glucocorticoids uh, when either initiating or changing DMAR therapies. Uh, and I think we're all aware of those studies, uh, mostly European, uh, that showed the benefit to uh, corticosteroids early on uh, in the course of disease. So a very uh, distinguishing uh, difference between ACR and ULR on, on the uh, issue of glucocorticoids. So case number two, 62-year-old gentleman, followed by you for seropositive RA for five years. He has been in CDI remission on methotrexate 20 milligrams weekly and a Tanercept. Three-month history of increase in stiffness and pain in the wrists, slight swelling of the wrists on examination, does not complain of loss of function, C-dice score modestly elevated at 10. Uh, after discussion, you decide to A, nothing, B, switch etanercept to abatacept, inject the wrists with steroids, stop etanercept and add hydroxychloroquine and sulfasalazine, uh, triple therapy, switch oral methotrexate to sub-Q methotrexate. So again, a very common clinical scenario that we all uh, see, patient doing really well, kind of he would choose. Jack, what do we got? So the audience uh, are a little bit split, about a third, a third, a third. A third saying, 35% uh, saying inject the wrists with steroids, 27% saying observe, suck it up. 27% <laughs> saying switch to oral methotrexate or sub-Q methotrexate. Okay, right. I think those are all reasonable, reasonable suggestions, and I think we would all say that those are reasonable uh, choices. So does the ACR give us guidance on this? So these are, this is the category that they call patients not at target. And all the recommendations are conditional, and I think that's evidenced by the fact that everyone kind of split on this, on, on this topic. So uh, if patients are on glucocorticoids, adding a DMAR to get them off of glucocorticoids certainly makes sense. Uh, if you're on DMARDs and not at target, uh, add or switch to DMARD uh, um, uh, in combination with uh, a burst of corticosteroids or uh, a corticosteroid injection. Um, on maximal methotrexate, to add a biologic or uh, targeted synthetic DMARD. And the key and the interesting part about this is that they clearly uh, um, recommended this over uh, triple uh, therapy. And I think the people on the panel, uh, as was described at the ACR meeting, was, were rather split on this, partly because, as we all know, of the studies that showed that triple therapy uh, showed some equivalence to a biologic plus methotrexate in some, in some of the earlier studies. Uh, but this was driven in part by the fact that triple therapy is not very well tolerated by many of our patients, as we all know. And certainly, we've all voted with our feet, and triple therapy is uh, very, uh, not very used very often uh, um, uh, currently. Um, and uh, the other aspect of this that I think is somewhat controversial uh, and, depart and departs from previous recommendations is if you're on a biologic or target synthetic DMARD, the recommendation now, at least the conditional recommendation, is to consider switching to an agent in a different class rather than using uh, an agent in a similar, similar class. So the other aspect of this is, is really what I find very, very fascinating, is the differences in the recommendations of treat to target. So if you have not seen a biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD, the strong recommendation is continue to use treat to target uh, over usual care. 
So these are, so these are patients in whom uh, are DMARD naive, uh, and we clearly still want to, to uh, try to reach uh, treat to target, treat to target. The controversy is in the conditional recommendations. First is the second, the second bullet point, which is that the initial treatment goal of low disease activity over remission. So they're clearly favoring low disease, and, and this is apparently uh, a concept that many of us uh, know, which is it's very difficult sometimes for patients to reach a remission. And particularly the patients were concerned uh, that it was often um, uh, psychologically very damaging when they, they were not able to reach the, the target of, of complete remission. Um, but the other aspect of this, which is somewhat controversial, is that their conditional recommendation is that if you had failed one biologic or one targeted synthetic DMARD, that treat-to-target over usual care was only conditionally recommended, was not strongly recommended. And I think this dovetails nicely into the discussion that you just heard from Professor uh, Birch, which is that uh, oftentimes patients fail to reach remission because, not because of the disease activity, but because they fail to achieve our assessments of the disease activity. So many patients fail to reach remission because of pain or other confounding factors. Uh, sometimes it's patient preference, not wanting to escalate therapy. Uh, but uh, those patients, and we're all aware of them, patients with osteoarthritis or fibromyalgia or other painful uh, confounders often do not, are not able to reach remission or even low disease activity. And this is a um, uh, a, a concern that they raised in this uh, conditional recommendation. So a little bit of a different, more nuanced approach uh, to treat, treat to target. And frankly, I welcome this because I think this is all what we do in, in practice in, in the so-called real world. So the ULAR recommendations, I just outlined in red the changes in which um, they um, gave uh, biologic DMARDs and targeted synthetic DMARDs even footing in terms of uh, next choices. Uh, other than that, there was not much change. Uh, and they still recommend uh, um, remission uh, and low disease activity in every, in every patient. So a much more standard approach to this. Case number three. A 59-year-old woman with seropositive RA has been seeing you for RA for the past four years. She, per she has persistent joint pain and she had persistent joint pain and swelling on methotrexate monotherapy. Three years ago, she was switched to abatacept in addition to methotrexate. She feels great and has been in CDI remission uh, for the last two years. Um, she's tolerating medicines, and as many of our patients present to us, Doc, I want to be off those medicines. I want to stop something. Don't I deserve to stop something? <laughs> so you decide, A, the suck it up, the suck it up uh, uh, answer, which is, uh, you're doing great on methotrexate and abatacept. Why rock the boat? Rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic illness. Uh, why, risk, why risk a flare? B, taper uh, um, uh, abatacept uh, by extending the dosing interval. Taper and then with the goal of stopping abatacept completely, stop methotrexate or initiate a taper of methotrexate. So distinguish between taper and stopping when you uh, answer. Jack, actually, here we go. Not yet, sorry. So most of the audience prefers initiating a taper of methotrexate at 65%. 3% uh, uh, say taper and stop at abatacept, and 18% initiate taper of abatacept by extending the dose interval. 
Okay, so I think you guys are cheating and have read the guidelines before I, uh, before I present it. The guideline committee would be very, very happy with, with, with this. Okay, so this is where uh, these are all conditional recommendations. And, and, and I do think that there, the, the committee is obviously a little bit of a two, two, minds, two minds in this. Uh, on one hand, the conditional recommendation is continue, continue everything, right? Continue current doses, don't risk a flare, particularly if there's no, no toxicity. But then they go on to say that if you are going to taper, uh, and this might be driven by, again, patient preference, um, uh, sometimes with cost issue, uh, this is how our, our conditional recommendations of how you go about that. So they say dose reduction uh, over uh, um, a gradual discontinuation, right, as a conditional recommendation. Um, Gradual discontinuation over abrupt stopping. I think that all makes sense for what we all do in practice. Uh, if you're on triple therapy, gradual discontinuation of sulfazalzine over hydroxychloroquine. Sulfazalzine seems to be the first drug that we all stop. Um, and as you guys have all gotten correctly, they recommend uh, gradual discontinuation of methotrexate over discontinuation of the biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD. And I, and um, I think that's a recognition of the fact that um, you don't want to discontinue the drug that got you the improvement, that for the most of our patients, uh, they're patients who have failed the methotrexate first, a biologic was added, so why do you want to kill the drug that basically uh, uh, resulted in improvement? Well, as you know, this is very different than, um, uh, uh, than the ULAR recommendations in 2019. To be fair to ULAR, uh, they were probably did not consider uh, the recent studies that we've seen, notably the SEAM trial uh, and um, Arctic Rewind that was presented over the last couple of meetings uh, that shows that uh, um, tapering a biologic uh, results in significant flares. But their recommendations as of 2019 uh, was to taper the biologic first. And they also are under, I think, more uh, stringent um, uh, uh, concerns about uh, cost uh, in, their, in their patient population. Uh, case number four, a 58-year-old gentleman with seropositive rheumatoid arthritis. He has hypertension, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease. He's obese with a BMI of 36. He smokes. Uh, he's followed for pulmonary, by pulmonary for reactive airways disease. He has nodules at both elbows. He has done well on methotrexate plus a tanercept. Uh, which of the following findings would cause you to discontinue methotrexate? So this is the, the classic comorbidity disaster that we uh, frequently see uh, uh, in our offices and that uh, we want to refer to other academic centers if we possibly can. Um, so what are your choice? Why, why would you discontinue methotrexate? Nodules at the feet requiring surgical removal. Uh, the finding of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease found on ultrasound of the liver done for abdominal pain, done for not an assessment of liver, but just because someone was doing an ultrasound. Pulmonary fibrosis seen on CT scan of, of the lung, or none of the above. Okay, Jack, what do you got? A very good question. Uh, Thirty-five percent, really split, but the leading answer was none of the above. Thirty-five percent, and evenly split between the rest. Huh. 
All right. So this is, fits under the category of uh, specific population discussions. Uh, and uh, I think the fact that you were all split uh, in, in these groups uh, suggests that uh, it was a very good thing that uh, the ACR guidelines uh, uh, committee uh, looked at these uh, specific uh, patient populations. Uh, unfortunately, they're all conditional recommendations. So subcutaneous nodules in patients with high to moderate disease activity uh, 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 with methotrexate uh, over other uh, DMARDs, um, uh, you only stop methotrexate if you think the nodules are progressive. So nodules in and of themselves are, are not reasons uh, to not use methotrexate, and I think that's a very important, important issue. Uh, pulmonary disease is also a very controversial uh, um, uh, um, specific uh, population. Uh, and as you know, many of the pulmonologists uh, believe that methotrexate uh, accelerates uh, um, ILD uh, in the IR patient population. So oftentimes the recommendation to stop methotrexate uh, comes from our uh, pulmonologists. Uh, but when the committee looked at this, that this information, they thought that the evidence that suggested that methotrexate increased ILD uh, was uh, not very robust. Um, and that uh, in patients with stable pulmonary disease and stable airway disease, uh, that methotrexate conditionally could be, uh, could be uh, continued uh, over switching to other um, conventional synthetic DMARDs. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, as you know, is epidemic uh, in, our, in our patient population. Um, and in the setting of normal liver enzymes and function tests, no advanced fibrosis on uh, ultrasound. Uh, they conditionally recommended that methotrexate uh, could be continued in this uh, patient population. So very nice to see that in, uh, uh, in, in their recommendations. Um, in lymphoproliferative dis disorders, rituxan is still conditionally recommended over uh, other biologics. Uh, a recommendation on hepatitis B, um, suggesting prophylactic treatment, strongly recommended uh, if um, uh, your hepatitis core positive and uh, antigen negative, um, but uh, frequently monitored uh, if your uh, hepatitis B hepatitis B core antibody positive and antigen negative. If you're starting a non-rituxan biologic, so prophylactic therapy recommended only if um, you're uh, starting rituxan therapy. Heart failure is similar to the previous recommendations: is to be cautious uh, with a TNF inhibitor in patients with. Uh, class three or class four heart failure. Um, and if you're on a TNF inhibitor and develop heart failure, the conditional recommendation is to switch to a non-TNF uh, uh, um, biologic. And certainly that's much easier with the, uh, uh, with the uh, uh, current choices we have available to us. Uh, they made a recommendation about persistent hypogammaglobinemia uh, without infection on rituxan at target. Um, many of us who have been giving rituxan to patients over the years now are starting to see this, and their recommend, conditional recommendation is that rituxan can be continued in those patients. Um, and they made a recommendation about serious infection within 12 months. If you're not at target, to consider um, uh, switching the DMARDs uh, over uh, glucocorticoid use, recognizing that glucocorticoids uh, increase significantly the risk of serious infection. Uh, and if you're not at target, on a conventional synthetic DMARD monotherapy, consider another conventional synthetic over starting a biologic uh, if you have that option. So that's all I have uh, this morning, um, and I guess we're going to
Okay, thanks, Dr. Matsumoto. We appreciate the, uh, the great presentation covering a really difficult subject. Uh, we're going to uh, end with some questions. I wanted to ask uh, Artie about steroids. Uh, I found the whole steroid discussion very interesting. Um, and even maybe where we're going with steroids. You know, we were raised in an era where 60% of rheumatoids were taking steroids. Steroids could be used as bridge therapy. Steroids were used as induction therapy. Ted Pincus thinks that two, three, four milligrams of steroids are great. But there's the ACR guidelines telling us, no, 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 no. Be limited. Don't go there. The, Euro, the euros are different. And then, I don't know if you're seeing this in your fellowship program, but I think our fellows use a lot less steroids than, than we did. Where do you think this is going? Yeah, I, I think Euler certainly comes across as being much more practical. They, they, they're not saying use a ton of steroids. They're, they're saying use a little bit and try to get them down as fast as you can. And I think that rings true to, to real practitioners. Um, and uh, I think the ACR runs the risk of being a little ivory tower and uh, snooty and saying, you know, just suck it up and, uh, you know, come back in 12 weeks and we'll see how that new therapy that I picked is. What, listening to that, I think of what our friend and colleague Alvin Wells always says, uh, you got to make the patient better. Uh, of course, he says, if you don't make the patient better, they're going to go down the street and go to another rheumatologist. But you got to make the patient better. And I, I think that um, to, to the, the, the truth um, and, uh, is, is likely in the middle. There, there probably is a, a place for them. Of course, they can have a ton of side effects. And what do you think about the discrepancy between ACR and UR on what to do when patients want to stop one of the combination therapies, methotrexate or the biologic? UR saying stop the cheap drug, um, stop the expensive drug and keep the cheap drug, stating that they can more likely um, uh, recapture control by restarting the expensive drug than the other one. And then the ACR says no. Stop methotrexate. Everybody hates methotrexate. Can you continue on what's going on? And by the way, all this is expert opinion. So where should people be landing? Yeah, I, I think they flip sides and the ACR seems to be more in touch with the practicality of it because people do that. And you are, I, I think they make no bones about it. It's all cost-based. And, um, and yet, uh, because it is cost-based, I find that the patients will you know, they're, they're sensitive to the cost. And uh, if, if they probably already stopped methotrexate a while ago anyway, but uh, they're the ones who are often pushing to taper the, the biologics or even stop them if they can, mostly cost-based. Yeah. Uh, Art Weinstein, uh, hey Art, asked a really interesting question about Pizalis' paper um, in Lancet where the RNA, RNA sequencing of the synovium led to a better choice um, between choosing either an IL-6 inhibitor or um, rituximab targeting B cells. If you did just sort of counted B cells, you were not any better. But if you did RNA sequencing, got a, maybe a better number, you were more apt to um, predict responsiveness. Um, where, is that where we're going? Is that? Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's one of those. It's, it's kind of like a movie where you really want to see it, and it sounds really exciting, and the plot sounds really good. And you get into it, and you, the further you get into it, the more you go, my gosh. Um, I really, really wanted to like it. It's a synovial immunohistopathology. It's by biopsy-driven, but um, it falls apart like a 
card table once you start looking at it as you said it wasn't it was the b cell poor only by rna seq not by immunopathology where tocilizumab did better that makes sense but in the b cell rich there was no difference um and and it was it was interesting i i i just i read that not so long ago i forget who wrote the editorial um uh, but it, it was about the most lukewarm editorial accompanying an article you could ever read if anybody wants to go look at it Actually, it's, I have it sitting here. It's the Lancet, um, the January 23rd issue of the Lancet. Um, I don't think I printed the editorial, but it's intriguing. And I think it's, it's a nice idea, but um, you know, it's, it, it's not to the point yet where it's going to make a, a big a difference in what we do in the clinic. And it's also in, you know, impractical. Who's got synovium? Who can do RNA sequencing? You know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> We need a magic wand before we get there. Um, all right, folks, we're going to end the session. We thank you for tuning in to Tuesday Night Rheumatology and Room Now Live. Next week, it's a session on uh, the psoriatic arthritis with the experts, uh, um, Eric Ruderman, Alexis Ogdi, and a nurse practitioner, uh, Melody Young. Um, really great session. We'll be covering that next Tuesday. We'll see you then. Is, right, it, is, it, is it true that it's a cage match next week? Uh, the three will be locked in and the winner faces Conor McGregor. I'm betting on the nurse practitioner. I'm telling you that. <laughs> She's tough. <laughs>